very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview or every interview and every video, give yourself the gift of truth. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll be able to choose from three months, six months, nine months, one or two years. You won't regret it. And don't forget to visit sanitasradio.com. A lot of great interviews as well. And the motto there is, it's your life. Take control. Tonight's interview will appeal to the many who have hope that there is help from the other side available to each and every one of us. We continue the saga of our guest's spiritual awakening as recounted during our first interview and his first book, Dancing on a Stamp. The second interview discusses the sequel. Tonight's special guest is Garnet Schulhauser, who will describe his most recent exploits with Albert, his spirit guide, who appeared one night to guide him on a series of -of out-of-body adventures to explore a dazzling white city on the spirit side, other planets in the galaxy with intriguing life forms, and some of the far-flung regions of our planet that suffer from human abuse. These fascinating astral excursions were designed to inspire us to renounce the dark side of humanity in favor of spiritual enlightenment. And all of this and more, right now on Veritas. Garnet Schulhauser practiced corporate law with two large law firms in Calgary, Canada for 34 years before retiring to Vancouver Island in 2008. Garnet's life changed dramatically one day in 2007 when he was confronted on the street by a homeless man named Albert. Over the next few years, he had a series of conversations with Albert, who was actually a wise spirit in disguise, who disclosed startling new truths about life, death, the afterlife, and God. Albert answered all of life's big questions about who we are, our purpose for being on earth, and what happens to us after we die. Albert's revelations were inspiring, uplifting, and comforting, and flew in the face of almost everything that Christian holy man had been preaching for centuries. He wrote Dancing on a Stamp at Albert's request, so that these revelations would be available to everyone. And tonight we discuss a sequel, titled Dancing Forever with Spirit. Astonishing Insights from Heaven. And to learn more about Garnet Schulhauser and his work, visit his website at garnetschulhauser.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Vancouver Island, Canada, I would like to welcome Garnet Schulhauser. Hello, Garnet, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I'm fine, Mel. Um, I'm delighted to be back on your show again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I really enjoyed our first talk, and a lot of our listeners really enjoyed the book and our talk, so I'm really looking forward to to this new chapter of our interviews because, I, as I told you offline, I just finished reading the book, and I cannot believe all the things you included in this book, so I'm really, really excited about this. For those who are listening to us tonight and to Garnet Schulhauser for the first time, this is not his first time on Veritas, so I would highly suggest you listen to our first interview before you proceed with this second interview. So yes, stop this audio and listen to the first interview. That way, all of this will make sense to you. Once you're done, then come back here to the second interview. But Garnet, I'm sure most people listening have already listened to your first Veritas appearance, and I'll look forward to exploring more. 
just a quick recap. Who was Albert? So to, to set the stage, who was Albert? And did he recommend that you embarked on his second book? Right. Well, Albert was my spirit guide. And how I met him now was I was still practicing law back in 2007. And I went for a stroll in the street one afternoon. Um, and uh, uh, all of a sudden, this homeless man kind of jumps out of the shadows and confronts me, uh, stops me in my tracks. Anyway, uh, it turned out that this homeless man was really Albert, uh, my spirit guide in disguise, and he had come to answer my questions, help me on my journey, and to ask me to write a book. Initially, it was one book uh, to disclose his revelations so everyone could have access to them. So that that chance meeting, well, it wasn't chance. It was deliberately planned at Albert's part. It seemed chance to me. Um, uh, led to a series of conversations, and uh, and that resulted in my first book, Dancing on a Stamp, which which was written at Albert's request because he wanted me to spread his message to everyone and give them hope and comfort. And so that was the first book. And then uh, when I finished that book, um, I. Uh, hadn't heard from Albert for a while, uh, but he did tell me that I had to write not just another one, but f- four in total. Um, and, and so I was sort of chomping at the bit, a, a bit anxious to get going on my second book. But I knew that the, 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 the content for my second book would have to come from Albert, and he had gone AWOL for a while, and I was becoming a, a little bit anxious, like, how am I going to do this, Albert? Um, it, it's interesting, in the first in the first series of conversations, uh, the first three times he appeared in physical form to me as a homeless man. And after that, our conversations were by telepathy. So he was, uh, I'd ask him a question in my mind and he would answer it. And we had a dialogue. And so dancing on a stamp was a description of this dialogue um, and the uh, revelations he made to me and uh, as he answered my questions. So this, the second appearance of Albert was fairly different. Do you want me to jump into that, Mel? Well, let's let's uh, continue giving a little bit of a perspective to the people listening to us. Just to, for the skeptics who are listening to us, these were not dreams. These were conscious communications, correct? Absolutely. They were very vivid. And, and the reason I know they're not dreams is because uh, my memories of my dialogue and encounters with Albert were are, are still much more vivid and lucid in my mind than any dream ever was. In fact, they're probably more vivid than any any memory of my waking life so far. So they're they're, they're clearly very different. It's not a dream. It it really did happen, um, and it's uh, it, it's not dissimilar to a lot of people who uh, who've had a near death experience, who've you know traveled uh, astrally to the other side, um, and 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 that's uh, that's my that's how my encounters with Albert uh, uh, were, and they're still really quite vivid in my mind. So they, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, they're not dreams. They were a real, real experience. In the second book, you recount how Albert took you in your astral body to a journey. This is something you didn't mention during the first book, I believe. Was this something that happened recently? And was, was that your first time astral traveling? Yes, um, it, it, I didn't mention it in my first book because it didn't happen in my first book. There I was, uh, all of my conversations, I was sitting in my home or in my backyard and uh, Albert and I would have a conversation uh, by telepathy. So I never actually went anywhere. Um, so uh, that was the first book. And, and in the second one, uh, it was a bit of a different format. And, and, and how that happened was that uh, I was asleep in my bed one night and I heard a noise and I sort of sat up. And I saw this sort of a shimmering ethereal figure standing uh, near the doorway of my bedroom. Um, and I didn't know quite what was going on. And, and as the, the, this figure approached, I could then recognize that it was Albert in his, in his homeless man disguise, except that he was an astral form. And so I, I said to, you know, hi, Albert, nice to see you. And, and, and why are you here? And, and, and why are you in this form? And he said um, that uh, he was going to take me on a series of out-of-body adventures because um, he wanted to give me a food for my second book. Uh, he wanted to explain lots of things to me and, and, for, and have me explain them to the, to the readers of my second book. And in his view, a picture was worth a thousand words. So rather than just have a telepathic conversation, he said, I'm going to take you and show you places and so that you can actually see for yourself. And so... I said, well, you know, uh, you know, where are we going, Albert? How long are we going to be? Do I have to tell my wife uh, where I'm going? Uh, you know, she's going to wonder where I am. He said, yeah, no, not to worry. He said, because you're going to be traveling in, in, in astral form. You'll leave your physical body behind. 
um, and you'll be back in your body before morning. So your wife won't even know that you were ever gone. So he reached out his arm and, and I, I, I grasped his hand and he just sort of gently pulled me out of my physical body. And so there I was standing and I looked down and I was sort of like, like him, I was sort of a, a shimmering, tra- semi-transparent kind of uh, outline of my body. I looked back and my physical body was still there in my bed, sleeping beside my wife and my little dog. Um, and he said, okay, are you ready to go? And I said, sure. So he just sort of, we just sort of floated up through the ceiling, up through the clouds and sort of stopped hovering way above the, our beautiful planet. So that's how that adventure started, which was, uh, which was the first time I'd ever traveled astrally, Mel. It never happened to me before. And I like to go in chronological order because the, the adventures are just uh, incredible. Where did he take you first? Please describe the journey, the first journey, and when, who, with whom did you meet? Well, the first journey, he took me through this uh, sort of a shimmering doorway to the spirit side. The spirit side is where we all came from originally, Mel, before we incarnated. Um, some people call it heaven or the other side, but it's, it's all the same place. And it's the place that we all go back to after we finish our incarnation. So he took me into the, through this doorway to the spirit side. And the first thing that, that struck me, which sort of took away my breath, was this, we were in this beautiful... Uh, lush meadow. It was like uh, incredibly beautiful, indescribably beautiful, with green, lush grass, uh, beautiful trees, uh, wildflowers with uh, a thousand different hues and uh, wonderful perfume. It was like the, the most amazing sort of park or meadow you could ever imagine. And so we, he took me through a stroll through there. And we went up over the hill, and, and as we hit the crest of the hill, I looked down on the other side and I saw a group of people at the bottom of the hill. So as we got closer, my, my heart again skipped a beat because I recognized who they were. They were my mother, my father, uh, my brother, Brian, um, my grandparents, uh, and some of my aunts and uncles who had passed away before. They were all there waiting to greet me. And what is even more surprising was my little dog, Oscar, who passed away about 10 years before, was there as well. And he came running from behind them, trotting up to me with his uh, tail wagging his whole body. Uh, and uh, I knelt, knelt down and he licked my face and was like, oh, it was so nice to see him again. So my, 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 my family was all there. They all gave me warm hugs. They basically gave me total reassurance uh, that if I ever had any doubt about it, that, that our loved ones who pass from this world, uh, Mel, um, are all doing well. They're on the other side uh, because they're all souls, eternal souls like us who never die. And they're all well looked after and happy on the spirit side, in fact, happier than anybody on earth probably could ever be. And I was a little apprehensive at first, uh, as I describe in my book, because um, I was wondering what my mother would say to me, because she was a very staunch Roman Catholic. She was a feisty Irish lady who was very determined that we faithfully followed all the rules of the Catholic Church when I was uh, growing up. Uh, because she was very determined that that her husband and her five kids were going to make it to heaven, even if she had to drag us kicking and screaming. And so she was, uh, so I was concerned because in my first book, as you know, Mel, I wasn't kind to the Catholic Church. Uh, I took exception to a lot of their beliefs and then poked fun at some of their, uh, at some of their dogma. Uh, and I was concerned my mother would be upset at me, but she wasn't. She said, you know, if I was still living on earth, I wouldn't be happy with what you put in your first book, but now that I'm here on the spirit side, I can see the whole picture, and I know that what you wrote was the real truth, and that you faithfully described what Albert uh, uh, revealed to you, uh, and I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. So that was like, you know, sigh of relief um, that uh, my mother had given me the seal of approval. One aspect um, that confuses me is that if we die. And our spirit, our spirit, or spirits go elsewhere or reincarnate. How do you get to see all of them again at the same time? Did they did they not go elsewhere? Um, well, yeah, yeah, some of them had, some of them hadn't. But but the trick is, is, you see, when we incarnate, Mel, every night when we go to sleep, our souls leave our physical bodies and journey over to the spirit side. 
uh, even though we're, we don't remember it, we're not aware of it. So we all do this. Um, and, and so w- when, when these people were there to, to greet me, some of them had incarnated, but they were journeying out of their bodies during their, mm. their nighttime sojourn. And so that, that's how, that, how they could all be there, even though some of them were actually reincarnated back on Earth again. So it's kind of a bit of a difficult uh, idea for us to grasp, but it's quite natural uh, for the people over there in the spirit side. And, and, and that's why, um, you know, you can see all of your relatives gathered. When you cross over yourself, your, your welcoming party will be have all of your loved ones there, even though some of them are elsewhere uh, in a physical body at that particular time. How do you describe them physically if they're in the spirit world? Well, see, see, according to Albert, uh, spirits, uh, souls in the spirit side can appear in whatever form they want. Um, and, and they often will take the, the appearance of, uh, of someone in their last life or someone in a previous life that they quite enjoyed. And they will tailor their appearance to whoever they happen to be meeting. So when I was meeting with my family group, they all appeared to me in the, in the way that I remembered them, although not necessarily quite as old like like my mother and father were sort of more like in their 30s and 40s but I certainly recognized them um, and so they did that deliberately so that I would feel comfortable and at home and I wouldn't have any identity issues um, but but they can change their appearance whenever they want and in fact some of the souls over there will just be a, a globe of uh, of glowing light um, but everyone has a unique energy signature and so no matter what sort of appearance that the soul happens to take at a time, uh, every other soul recognizes them immediately by this unique energy signature. So anyway, my welcoming party was designed for me. Um, and uh, the soul that was my in my little dog, Oscar, of course, appeared as my little dog, so I would recognize him. Uh, but he, that, that soul is a soul like everyone else. And no doubt when I left that party, they probably all changed their shape back into some other form that they were quite happy to uh, to be with. And that was my not my other question. Did they appear to you older in life, younger in life? So obviously, you know, 30, 40s, so that you can have a, a better idea of who, you know, what they looked like. Now, what happens, and we'll talk about Oscar later. You have a very interesting story about Oscar and some of the things that we perhaps subconsciously or unconsciously do onto others without noticing. And you have a very interesting story about Oscar and others that we'll take uh, on later. What happens when we advance technologically, but not spiritually? Did Albert mention how this happened in the past with other with other advanced civilizations like, say, Lemuria and Atlantis? Yeah, he did. He, he, he said that the... Uh there's been many uh, advanced human civilizations in the past, like the ones that you mentioned, Lemuria, Atlantis, a number of others that our historians have not, uh, historians have not even uh, um, discovered yet or, or even have an inkling about. Um, and he said that it, it, it happens every time when the, their technological advances exceed their emotional intelligence and they, and, and they end up uh, self-destructing and crashing and burning. And, and, and he said that, and he actually showed me a, a couple of examples. One where uh, uh, another one that, that I can get into later it, that was in the South Atlantic. And then he showed me sort of a success story where uh, he took me to see the, the the new Earth in a higher dimension. Um, but but one of the things that um, that that he wanted me to sort of uh, uh, zero in on is the fact that our our current human civilization is at a very crucial crossroads. And we have uh, great technology, um, but our emotional intelligence has not caught up yet. We still have many, too many negative emotions. And the danger is that um, with our weapons of mass destruction, if we take the wrong step, we can actually wipe out all life on this planet, um, uh, which, which will put us back in the same place as some of the other civilizations. We'd be back to the Stone Age. Um, so part of the, the part of the, the the message from his journey was for me to to realize that and pass the message along to everyone that we have to get our act together. And that there's a bit more of that as I describe my conversations with the Council of Wives ones. When we did that in the past, which I've always suspected that we have eradicated ourselves because we've uh, evolved more technologically. Have we wiped ourselves completely out and perhaps life has been seeded again or did just a few survivors survived and they started from sticks and stones once again? 
Well, it's a bit of both, according to Albert. Sometimes there's been, a, for some of the civilizations, there's been a few survivors that were traveling outside of the disaster area, and they had to start over basically with, uh, you know, a, a Stone Age uh, civilization. Um, and there has been some cases early, very early on where the only civilization that was there got wiped out and... Uh, the uh, the extraterrestrials had to reseed human life on Earth, so that's happened a, a few different times in different ways. Um, but uh, for Atlantis and Lemuria, there were other people, other human civilizations, not as advanced on the planet that did survive, but they they lost all the technology that uh, that those uh, advanced civilizations had. So it's been a, a bit of a roller coaster up and down ride for humans, um, and. Uh, the, you know the, the the people on the spirit side are really concerned that we don't stumble and fall again because we're certainly in that very crucial position again, and they really want us to 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 make it this time, and and um, so do I. So I'm 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 happy to do my part as being a, a messenger for them to tell my fellow humans that uh, we really got to discard our negative emotions and embrace love, and that's how we can uh, get past this. Uh, this uh, obstacle that we're facing right now. Did Albert introduce you to any extraterrestrial forms during any of your astral trips? Yes, he did. Yeah. He, he, uh, two different civilizations. One was on, uh, um, it was on a planet near the center of our galaxy called uh, Zeron. Um, and he took me there and, and living underground because they, uh, the planet was sort of barren on the surface because their star had gone to uh, a giant red star and kind of wiped out all the, all the vegetation on the on the surface, and and so they lived underground, and they were a, a, a series of or a species of cr very intelligent creatures that were sort of like they looked like spiders to me anyway. Um, uh, they were very intelligent, and they had uh, very advanced technology. And their job was to monitor all the planets in our galaxy to see whether or not they might be suitable for harboring life, and that was the job assigned to them by. The, the, the council that sort of oversees our galaxy called the Galactic Council, um, whose whose job was was to on the on the dense plains where Earth is is to uh, try to seed life where they can and uh, and and populate the the uninhabited planets. So these creatures, uh, these spider creatures, um, they had advanced technology, so they would monitor uh, the different planets over a period of time. And when they felt that a particular planet was uh, w was suitable for 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 life, they would uh, notify the council, and then another species of ETs would actually transport life from one of the planets that had life over to the new planet, and and actually seed the life there. And they would, uh, and they actually did that with Earth. Uh, they started off with some primitive life forms, um, and then gradually moved up to seeding of humans. Um, and so that was sort of. Uh, um, that was very interesting because it, it just shows you that there are many, many other civilizations that are intelligent um, in, in the universe. A lot of them more intelligent than ours um, civilization, and uh, they have been helping us in very subtle ways. Uh, you know, ever since uh, Earth was capable of harboring life. So that was the first group. The second group was in a spacecraft orbiting the planet Earth, and we uh, went to visit them, and they were. Uh, um, Humanoid creatures, uh, sort of gray skin and uh, 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 about five feet tall. They were also very intelligent. They had spacecraft that could, you know, travel faster than light. Um, and they had been monitoring Earth ever since life was first seated there. Were they were they the ones from Nibiru? Yes, from Nibiru. Okay. Um, and they their job was to sort of have more direct observations with what what's going on on earth and they they uh, help by transporting life to seated on earth um, and they try to help us when they can in subtle ways they were not allowed to uh, directly interfere with what was going on but they could help us in subtle ways by uh, you know uh, injecting ideas into into human into human minds for technological advancements uh, sometimes they would help us um building some of the structures like the pyramids um, um but they were very uh they, they just could they could not because of this directive directive of non-interference they were not allowed to sort of stop you know uh, wars and massacres and they couldn't use their instruments to destroy all of our weapons of mass destruction that was something they were not allowed to do so they had to sort of observe what was going on help where they could and then um you know unfortunately they watched how uh how some of the other civilizations had had destroyed themselves 
and they were fearful that our current civilization might end up in the same boat. Uh, but they were doing the best they could without taking any direct interference. But you see, I understand the directive of non-interference. If it's not affecting other worlds and other dimensions, but if, let's say, we're watching little humans, right, 1940s, all of a sudden we realize that they found the proverbial matches and now we split the atom and now we're just dropping nuclear bombs. And I believe this has repercussions not only in our solar system, but across the galaxy and maybe even other dimensions. Isn't that enough excuse to say, stop it, we need to do something about it? Well, I, I think that's right. And, and if it comes down to that, they will. But it, it has to be sort of further advanced than it is now. And so while the, well, the, the smart move you would think would be just to, let's just destroy the weapons before these jokers uh, do something wrong with it, they actually have to wait a bit further down the road to see whether or not we can pull this out of, out of the fire ourselves. And so, but if we ever get down to it where we're exploding so many bombs that we do interfere with other, uh, other planets, other dimensions, then yes, then they can step in. But by then, it's, uh, it may be too late for humans. So it's, it's a bit of a waiting game for them. Um, but they, uh, the, you know, the, the, their prime reason is to, prime reason for seeding life on these planets is to let life sort of develop on its own. And they recognize that sometimes life will go way off course. Um, uh, but they have to sort of watch and, until it gets to uh, such a critical point where it, it's actually going to interfere with, uh, with other planets or other dimensions. And, and we're not there yet. So hopefully we don't get there, Mel. What about other planets in our solar system, say Mars? Did we have life there before? And what happened to the planet? Well, yeah, Mars did have uh, uh, life before, and that came about when uh, Albert was, uh, he, he was showing me some of my past lives in the Akashic records. And, and those records, as you know, Mel, have the records of every life that's ever been lived in the universe, you know, from day one. And, and so he, he showed me a few segments from some, some of my previous lives, and one of them was where I was a scholar in, 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 in Greece, ancient Greece, and I was... At, at, tutoring one of my young students and one of the things was I was passing down knowledge that had been handed from me uh, down to me from uh, from other scholars uh, you know over a long period of time and uh, one of the stories I was telling him was uh, that uh, yes there had been life on on Mars had been human life on Mars it had been a very advanced civilization this is before humans even even uh, came to earth um, and they ended up destroying their civilization because they there was a segment in that population that that wanted to uh had just had determined that there was some very useful minerals in the asteroid belt and he decided that they needed to get those asteroids sort of back down to mars or in orbit around mars so they could mine them um, so they developed a very strong tractor beam uh, with the idea of pulling one of those asteroids or several into orbit around mars um, and so they uh they 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 decided to that they were going to proceed with this, and they ended up getting into a conflict with the people who thought that this was too dangerous in their civilization, and they and they ended up with this uh, tractor beam uh, getting out of control and and destroying their civilization. And uh, a few of the humans that were there got scooped up by the, an ET spacecraft and taken away to a safe place until um, the Earth was ready for humans. And so there was a civilization on Mars someday. Um, when when uh, when NASA lands some astronauts on Mars, eventually they're going to kick around. And they're going to find evidence of this, but so far they haven't found it. Well, I have a feeling that we've already been there, and we have the technology of doing so. And NASA is nothing but a it's nothing but window dressing. Did, did, did Albert mention anything of the sort to you that maybe the mainstream media, NASA, which is a branch of the Department of Defense? are just here to give us the illusion that we're exploring the cosmos? No, he didn't get into that. And it was one of the, uh, one of the questions I've had, and I'm, uh, I've got it on my list of questions to ask Albert on my, on my next excursion with him. But no, he didn't mention that. Um, but but I, I, I know I've read a lot of sources like you have, Mel, about that. And uh, uh, my next visit with Albert, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the issue with him to see what he says. But Albert's very, Albert's very careful about what he tells me because – he has an agenda uh, in terms of what he wants me to reveal to people, uh, and, and and it's a very and he won't tell me sort of what what's in his agenda, but he sort of will show me things 
that seem to be random, but uh, but he's got a very uh, very specific plan in mind in terms of how this information gets out to people, and I think it's part of. Uh, um, uh, his view that we don't want to overwhelm people too much with too much information that's sort of way out there and we'll uh, ease him into it slowly. And so I expect at some point he's going to uh, open the door for me uh, for that information and it'll probably be in a future book, Mel. That, that's that's fair. And uh, in the future, just ask him if you can bring a psychic with you, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were astral, tra- astral traveling, obviously you were traveling in spirit form. Describe how it felt without your body, and and describe Albert as you were following him. Were you essentially flying? Yeah, I mean, it was. I I felt totally weightless. It was like I I had no matter at all, um, and um, I would just follow. It was effortless because it was sort of like I would just think I have to follow Albert, and I would I would move. And Albert would take me, and, and then when we travel to different planets, uh, Albert would grab me by the hand and he would sort of think that we should be where he wanted us to go. And before you know it, it was sort of like a blink of an eye. There we were. So it was almost virtually instantaneous. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was just like, I was totally, I've never been weightless before, but I, but that's what it felt like to me is like, I had no, I had no mass. I was light as a feather. Um, and, um, I, I, I wasn't sort of, uh, used to traveling on my own. So I always went with Albert and he, of course, had a lot of experience in this. And so I would, just sort of follow him everywhere, um, and it was uh, it was really quite an experience. It was like uh, you know, like even better than flying as like an eagle. It was uh, it was a wonderful wonderful trip. Did you experience emotions, say fear, excitement for you know visiting all these new worlds? I never experienced fear, but I was also but I was very excited about uh, the the new places that I saw. Um, and, uh, I felt, uh, I felt love. I felt gratitude that, uh, I was, uh, had the opportunity to take these trips, which isn't something that everyone can do. Um, and I felt, uh, I, I felt, uh, sort of like duty bound when I had seen, gone to some of these places and, 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 and saw what, uh, what message there was there for me. I felt duty bound to, when I got, got back into my body to sit down at my computer and just quickly write down all my notes about all my experiences because I knew that that, that was that's part of my job now was to was to spread the message. But uh, no, I was never fearful. Um, and 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 in, in one case, it was uh, absolutely exhilarating uh, when uh, this is sort of towards the end of my book. I don't know if you want me to go there or not. When I visited a, a, one of the focal aspects of the source, it was it, that was an amazing. Uh, yeah, let's leave the source for later because that's probably sure. at the end of the book. I think. Sure. But- yeah, it is. Yeah. Your wife, when you wake up in the morning, does she ever ask you, so, honey, where did you go last night? No, she didn't because she didn't, uh, I mean, she wasn't aware that it was gone. Um, And uh, when I told her after the first few trips, I told her that I'd been taking some trips. She was sort of like, okay, well, um, are are you going to tell me about it or should I just read about it in your manuscript? And so uh, she just decided she would wait and read about it in my manuscript. Um, So she was... uh, I, I think she was a bit skeptical at first, uh, Mel, um, but I think she's past that now. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you, how is she taking all of this? Well, she's she's pretty good, uh, pretty good about it. She's she's a spiritual person herself, and she uh, and she uh, she really signed on to it. She didn't. I was afraid at first when I was writing my first, or releasing my first book, that she would think I'd gone off the deep end. Uh, but no, she's uh, she's very spiritual. She's she's had some some psychic contacts with her deceased mother and father in the past, and so she's really signed on to that. And so she she knows that what I'm saying isn't sort of totally out of bounds. Um, and so yeah, yeah, she's she's good with it, and she's she's very happy for me. And uh, she really hopes that that uh, I continue to, to to do my writing because I really enjoy it. Um, and yeah, and she. She's very supportive. I'm very happy about that. Well, good to hear. Now, Akashic Records, this is something that we hear for so many people. And and Albert mentions that to you. I think that's where he extracts information, which is where all what has happened in the past, present, and future is stored. Where are the Akashic Records and how do one access it? 
Well, they're in a in a in an edifice in this uh, on the spirit side, and I ex- expect that there's probably more than one um, outlet for them. Uh, this was in the city, this white city that Albert took me in, in the spirit side called Aglaia. Um, and in this big white building called the Hall of Records, and it was just a, um, a building filled with little sort of viewing rooms. And we accessed it by going into one of these viewing rooms, and there was a, a holographic globe sitting in the middle um, that was just sort of an, until Albert sort of activated it. It just had blue and white swirls, like clouds swirling around. And so Albert, he didn't show me how to exactly to, to, to get to the records, but he did it for me. Um, and he could just sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to show you this. And all of a sudden, the, the clouds would disappear, and there would be a, like a 3D picture of what he was showing me of, of some other one of my past lives or somebody else's past life. And the Akashic Records, of course, is where, you know, when we, when we die and we cross over, that's where we have our life review. And that's where we get to look back on our, our life and, you know, every segment of our life. And we get to, uh, you know, we can either watch it as a 3D movie or we can sort of really literally jump back into our bodies and sort of relive what was going on in our lives. Um, And the the really amazing things about uh, the Akashic Records is that you get to see not only what you did, but you get to hear the thoughts and feel the feelings of the people you interacted with. So for example, if you were, if you said something nasty to a coworker, um, you will not only be able to watch how it unfolds, but you'll actually be able to feel the hurt um, that that person felt at, at, at your abusive words, uh, which really hits home the lesson uh, that you're to learn by reviewing what you went on in your life. So you could really say, okay, well, I didn't really intend any harm to that person or, or to make them feel badly, but now I see that my words really uh, – were really quite hurtful, um, and the other side works too. If you if you've done a, a good deed, you get to feel this amazing sort of gratitude and love that the other people on the receiving end of your kind deed felt. So it's it's really a a very wholesome experience because you get sort of all ends of it, uh, and it, it's really and, and and I got a bit of that when he uh, Albert showed me a few segments of my current life. Um, just to show me what would be what would happen, and to, and to sort of give me a, a a lesson in terms of how you should think before you speak or or act, um, and so it was really quite amazing. And that's that's what the Akashic records are. And and he showed me some of my past lives. He showed me um, some uh, some lives uh, of other people, and and. You know, I mean, I, it was fascinating. Now, I could have, I could have sat there for for days and days. You know, because I'm curious about other people and certainly famous people and my other lives. But Albert had an agenda, so we we, we didn't dwell there for very long. But when I cross back over to the spirit side, when my body dies, uh, as can you, we can spend as much time in the Akashic records as we want. So, so you really are quite- you are your own jury. Nobody judges you. You are your own jury. Because you are experiencing both sides, what you went through, what the other person went through, whether it was good or bad. Mentioning how some people or even an animal felt, let's just explore this for a moment. But Albert was more or less telling you, look, these are some of the things that you have done in the past. And let me give you some examples. Let's take, for example, a bullying situation that happened when you were young. Right. Well, this was, uh, he took me back to uh, when I was in the seventh grade and, and I could see this clearly and, and I hadn't sort of recalled the incident until I saw it and then it sort of came back to me. But but uh, we, we, I was sitting there in school and then the, the bell rang for recess and uh, all of us kids piled out uh, of the school to into the schoolyard to go and play a game of pickup soccer. And and my good friend, uh, who was a bit, uh, a bit chubby, uh, we were running and he was sort of you know, lagging behind because he couldn't run as fast. And I just said, without really thinking, sort of jokingly, I said, you know, hurry up, fat silver, we don't have all day. Um, and then in the, in, in, the, uh, in the life review part, um, then I got to hear his thoughts and, hear, and, and, and feel his feelings. And, the, and he was really totally uh, very hurt by my words. Uh, you know, and, 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 and his thoughts were like, you know, why are you picking on me? I mean, I'm, I can't run as fast as you because I'm overweight and I get that from my father. Uh, and, you know, I thought you were my friend and here you are embarrassing me in front of all these kids by calling me these names, uh, you know, and I didn't do anything to deserve this. And I wished I were, you know, just fall into a hole somewhere and disappear. So it was really quite an eye opener because I, you know, 
it was just sort of a joke the way I said it. I didn't really think about how he would take it. Um, but it was really quite amazing when I got to hear uh, his thoughts and feel his feelings and how hurt he was. And it was just, I was just devastated. And I thought, you know, I did that very unthinkingly uh, and I wished I had it to do over again. But it, but it really demonstrated to me that all of us humans have to be careful before we act and say things because we have to consider how the other person on the receiving end may take it. And we have to be careful about what we think are words said in jest or uh, words without really thinking about what they mean, um, because it, it can really cause a lot of hurt and a lot of harm. And that was a real eye opener for me on that segment of my life review. And we've all done that. We've all done that. And we, as you say, we're not thinking. We think, oh, I just was, I was just joking. But you know, when when you see it this way, put things in perspective, and it allows us to to be a little more use more empathy. And then you had a, another example of how not only you can do this to humans, but also to animals in your successful career as a lawyer. You know how many times you had a long day and you came home and there was somebody there waiting for you. Oscar, tell us more. Yeah, Oscars are a little a little miniature schnauzer. And uh, so I was shown this one segment from my life uh, when I was practicing law. And uh, I was getting home from work and it was, you know, one of those long, hard days. And uh, and, and my little dog had been uh, sleeping on his bed by the by the back window. Um, and he heard the garage door opening as he as he always does. He knew it was I, I was coming home. And so he goes trotting out to the to the by the garage door, eagerly waiting for me to come in and I enter and I'm, I've got a thousand thoughts swirling in my mind about the, my day at work. I hang up my coat and I walk right past him uh, into the other room. Don't even say hi. Don't acknowledge him. Don't do anything. And so as I'm watching this aspect in my life review, then I got to, to, to hear his thoughts and his, and his feelings. And, and if people think that animals don't think and they don't have feelings, they are dead wrong because I got the full blast from this poor little dog who was just heartbroken because he'd been waiting all day for me to come back. Uh, and I walk in the door and go right past him without so much as a hello or a pat on the head. And he was just devastated. It was like, oh no, you're the most important person in my, my whole life. And now you're ignoring me. What did I do to deserve this? Did I, did I misbehave? You know, what's the problem? And then the poor little guy has to slink off back to his bed and dejected, puts his head on his paws. And as I say in my book, if, if dogs could cry, there would have been tears rolling down his eyes, uh, that were down his cheeks. Um, so it was really, oh, it, it, it just really hit home the fact that, you know, animals have feelings and they do think, even though we, we, we tend not to give them credit for that, Mel. Um, but it was really... I mean, after that, uh, we, we have another miniature schnauzer, um, and uh, I've always, uh, you know, I've always been very careful that whenever she comes up to me when I get home, I always make sure that I greet her and pat her and tell her that she's a good dog, because now I know that if you ignore, you know, your dogs or your cats or, you know, the other animals in your life, um, it, it can be quite hurtful to them. So it was really a quite an eye-opener, and it, it really brought home the fact that, that what Albert told me in the first book was when I said to him, do animals have souls? Right. And he, and he says, all you need to do is look into the eyes of your little dog to find your answer, uh, because, yeah, they do have souls, uh, and, they, and they are in, in, incarnated in those animals to have a, an earthly experience, um, and uh, they're here for the same reason that, uh, that uh, we are, and they do have feelings. I remember that conversation. I asked you that very question during our first interview. Can we reincarnate as animals or do we progress? Well, when I say progress, because I, I think some animals have uh, better feelings than some humans, but can we reincarnate in animals to experience what they go through? Yeah, we can. Um, Albert said it's entirely up to us, but he did say that, that most of the time it's sort of a, a progression from uh, a more simple sort of a lifestyle that, that animals have as you move up the the, the ladder and, and humans are more complicated. So typically he said, you'll start off with some more primitive life forms where you just have a, a brief interlude in the, in the body. Um, and then you, you, you usually sort of progress up to like, you know, like dogs are, they have feelings and they, and they think, but their lives are a lot more simpler than humans. And so it's easier for a soul coming to the earth plane to sort of start off with simpler life forms 
and then graduate to human life forms. So typically, if you're incarnated in a human now, as you are, you probably won't go back to that, but you can if you wish. Did you ask him, and I'm just thinking for a moment, there are so many people who write to me saying, Mel, you need to become a vegetarian or a vegan. And and look, listen, I, I understand the virtues of that. And believe me, sometimes I go on a one week of fruits and vegetables, I do feel better. I have to admit, did Albert say anything about animals and the fact that we eat them? And we've been doing this for, for for millennia. This has been happening. I mean, when we had ice ages, we had to eat pro animal protein in all order to survive. But what does he say about this? Well, he he had something interesting to say, and I asked him the question because he had been showing me some of the animal abuse that uh, happens on Earth, and I was really upset about that. And I and I said to him, "So does this mean we should all become vegetarians, Albert?" And he said, "Well, it's complicated when you come to humans." He said, "You know." If, First of all, there's no absolute right or wrongs on 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 this planet. So, the, our right or wrongs are relative in, in to to what our souls want, to what we think is proper. Um, so he said, you know, it, it's not wrong for a lion to kill and eat an antelope because they have to do that to survive, uh, or for a fox to eat a rabbit. He said humans uh, have been omnivores for ever since they've been on the planet because they would eat fruits and berries and 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 gather roots, um, but they'd also catch small animals initially to eat. Uh, they, they sort of had to eat whatever they got their hands on in order to survive. And as they got more sophisticated, of course, they started hunting larger animals. So he said, we've been, we've been acting omnivores ever since we've been on this planet. And he said, it's not something that's going to change overnight. Um, he said that it should, you know, the decision to discard and stop eating animal flesh should be up to each person. He said, but, uh, what is true is that um, as we try to increase our vibrations and, and move up the vibratory ladder, um, animal flesh tends to slow us down. And so what, what will happen is that as we do increase our, our vibratory levels, we will just sort of naturally um, decide that we don't really want to have that much animal flesh anymore because it doesn't make us feel very good and that we feel better if we abstain from it. And so this is a gradual process, and we'll initially we'll be you know cutting out uh, red meat, and then we'll cut out all meat, and then eventually we'll cut out seafood and just eat eat plant food. But it's it's a it's a gradual individual process. And he said it's not you know if you're not there yet, don't worry about it. But you will get there because eventually um, eating animal flesh will just make you feel unwell, um, and and uh, and you'll just stop naturally. So. The what short are, answer is, he said, don't worry about it. It's, uh, you know, you'll get there when you get there. What about other animals? I mean, say uh, other animals, the carnivores that eat each other. That's just the way it is. They don't hate the other animal. They just do it for survival. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It's, it's not done out of hatred or revenge or anything else. It's just a matter of that's how I survive. I mean, lions can't survive on vegetation. They have to eat animals and the same with some of the other carnivores. So, uh, you know, it, it, we have the advantage in that now, but back in the early days, of course, we, we didn't have supermarkets we could go to where you had this great uh, variety of, uh, of vegetables and fruits and everything else and grains uh, where we could live and we can now live without eating uh, animal protein. Uh, but uh, so back in those days, that wasn't possible. Now we can. And, and now we also have more knowledge about what is nutritious and what we need to have a healthy body. And we have the ability to go to the supermarket and buy it. So now we can become vegetarians. And in the last, you know, Hundred years or so, there's been a, a greater movement towards that. Um, so we don't we don't have any survival um, uh, problems by uh, by eating vegetation because we we can we we can certainly have a healthy diet if we choose to. Um, so it's a matter of you know it's it's it, it inertia history. You know um, I was raised on a on a farm mill and we had uh, we, we had you know meat and potatoes all the time. Uh, it's hard for me to, to dislodge myself from that. I still enjoy it. But I know it's better for me if I didn't do it. And I have a, a son and a daughter-in-law who are vegetarians. Uh, they get along just fine. And uh, um, one of these days, I'm going to make the switch, Mel. And believe me, I, I'm trying. I'm trying. But as you, it's very difficult to dislodge myself just because it's so ingrained in me. But I see the marriage, and I'll, I'll try. Now, 
he also showed you some of the positives that you've done in the past. For example, you had a a a, a, was a young young attorney at your office, I believe, who had made a mistake, and you did the right thing. Tell us more. Well, it was uh, it, it didn't seem to be much to me at the time, but when I saw the review, then uh, and and I saw the uh, heard the thoughts of the other lawyer, then it really hit home to me. But this young lawyer was helping me on a financing for a client. And one of the things that had to be done was a document had to be filed with the stock exchange in order to, to, to finalize the financing. And this young lawyer had forgot to do that. Um, and so he came into my office, uh, you know, white faced and ashen. And, uh, he was just, you know, t terrified that, that what, what I might say or what I might do because he had, he had missed his filing. And so he explained it to me and I, you know, and I thought to myself, uh, You know, I've I've made a lot of mistakes in my life in the past, and uh, you know, and I'm going to continue to make some more, I'm sure. And so, I didn't think this. You know, I thought, you know, there's no sense making this guy feel any any worse than he is right now. Um, and so I said, yeah, not to worry. Let's do the filing right now, and uh, we'll we'll explain it to the client. And it's, you know, it's not the end of the world. And I got to, to, to hear this young lawyer's thoughts, and it was like, oh, thank God, you know. Uh, I was so concerned, and and you're so wonderful for doing this, and uh, I, I felt this great uh, wave of gratitude coming from him in my life review, and and I thought, okay, well, it's nice to know I did do some good things in my life, and I really felt good about it, and it just again demonstrated that even some of the small things that you know, some of the small random acts of kindness that you may do to other people, you may not think much about it, but the, the person on the receiving end. Um, it's just wonderful for them and they feel a lot of gratitude. So it, it, it encouraged me to also try to do more of the positive things to other people, just small little gestures that may make a, a world of difference to the person, you know, uh, sitting across from you. So it was really quite uh, enlightening. And you see a little thing like that, a random act of kindness in the future, when this young man became or will become a partner at the law firm, he will remember this story. And there will be two or three other attorneys who would make mistakes, and he'll remember what you did for him. Imagine if you had done the opposite. Maybe he could have gotten fired. Maybe he could have, you know, who knows? But that little random act of kindness has a multiplying effect. And those who you are who are listening, try to do one a, one a day. It doesn't take that that much. Grocery store, look at people, smile. How many people don't receive a smile for a while? So. Now, getting back to the astral traveling, one time Albert said, quote, we're going to visit a watery planet light years from Earth so you can meet a few of its inhabitants, unquote. You, you asked how you were going to get there, and Albert, of course, he's a joker too. What did Albert respond jokingly to you? He said, well, we're going to, he said, I've arranged for a dog sled to come and pick us up. <laughs> he said, <laughs> a dog sled, right. He, he said, you know, it, it, it's not the... Uh, It's not the fastest way to travel, but the good thing is there's going to be a lot of uh, – we have a whole stock of in-flight movies you can watch. And, you know, uh, and the good thing is that if you ever get cold, you can curl up with the dogs. So that was his his uh, his response. You're right. He is a bit of a he's a bit of a rascal and a, and a bit of a jokester, and he likes to he liked to pull my leg a lot. And so I'm sitting here listening to this, and I sort of half believed him at first, and then he – And then he cracked his big smile and he said, uh, you know, no, I'm just joking. He said, come with me. We're going to do this astrally. So he then grabbed my hand and he just sort of pointed towards a group of stars and the stars sort of blink, you know, everything blacked out for a few seconds. And then they all came back into focus, except there were different stars and we were in a different place and we were hovering above this beautiful blue planet with clouds. It looked a lot like Earth, except there were no land masses. And he called this place Proteus. And it was a water planet, completely covered with water. And so we, we floated down towards the surface, uh, and then we actually dropped down below the surface of the water. And underneath, it looked like uh, it looked like the subsea in the Caribbean, where I had to, ha, have snorkeled a few times. You know, it had the coral reefs and the, and the kelp and the, and the other plants and all the colorful fish. Um, and we dropped down to near the bottom, and then uh, we approached... Uh, a big giant coral reef formation uh, in the distance. And there uh, we met up with a humpback whale and a dolphin. They looked exactly like the ones we have on earth. And so 
we spoke telepathically with them, or I did, um, and they said that they are relatives of the dolphins and humpback whales on Earth and, and the other sea life. They said that the sea life, or most of it, on Earth was originally seeded from Proteus by the ETs, and so the the the, the whales and the dolphins on Earth are really their their kin, their cousins. Are you saying that our ours here come from Orion, maybe from that area? Yes. Yeah, yeah, from Proteus. Huh. They come from Proteus. Yeah, they, they were seeded a long time ago by the by the by the ETs, um, and so they looked exactly like the ones we have here. And the amazing thing was that this this the, the the whale and the dolphin on this planet said that they made telepathic contact with their cousins on Earth, which is really quite amazing because it's over a long distance. Which just goes to show you that um, thought, uh, you know, is instantaneous. Like you know telepathy and thought it's not limited by the speed of light or anything else it's 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 virtually instantaneous so they 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 communicate with their cousins on earth and and so the reason that albert brought me to see them was because they wanted to tell me like you know hey you know what you humans have have been doing over the centuries and and what you're still doing to some extent is the abuse on our cousins you know the hunting the catching them in in uh, in in fishing nets uh you know the imprisoning them in our water parks and our aquariums um they they said this is not something that should be done like like our cousins on earth have not done anything to harm humans uh they're happy to live in harmony with mother nature and the other creatures um and they don't understand why humans are, are abusing them and have been for for a long time um and so their message to me was can you go back and tell your fellow humans that it's just wrong to to hunt and kill and maim, uh, you know, the sea life on Earth because these creatures are sentient creatures. Uh, they they think they have feelings, uh, and all they really want to do is live in peace and harmony with everyone else on Earth, including humans. And, and they have no power to sort of fight back against humans. And it's uh, so they're very very distressed about this. And so I, I said, yeah, absolutely, I would uh, I would go back and I would. Uh, Try to give my fellow humans that message, and it really hit home the fact that that uh, you know the, the the whales and dolphins on Earth can communicate with their their uh, their cousins on a on a different planet, millions of miles away, millions of light years away. Did did they say that our whales and our dolphins have tried to communicate with us, but obviously we don't understand them? So how are they doing that? Well, they, they are trying to communicate by telepathy, but most of us, well, I, I don't know of anybody who's, uh, there's probably a few people who, who can tap into their, their language, their thoughts. Um, most of us don't. Um, you know, humans just haven't, for the most part, haven't learned to use all of the, the power in their brains. They, we only use like what I heard was 10% of our brain power. If we could expand that, then we'd be able to communicate not only with the animals, but with each other by telepathy and communicate with the spirits on the spirit side, but we're not there yet. And we're too bound up in sort of uh, pursuing uh, material goods and, uh, um, you know, uh, the other things that humans tend to want to glom onto. And, and, and we don't, and we're just not developing our brains, but someday we will be able to communicate with them. And I think there are probably some, psychics living on earth who can uh albert didn't tell me this but i suspect that that's the case um and uh I, you know i i can't normally communicate with them but in my astral form with the help of albert i was able to communicate with these uh with, with these creatures and it was uh it was amazing it was like a, a conversation with somebody who was very uh all together uh very loving and very peaceful um and there was no animosity or or hatred or um desire for revenge uh, all they wanted uh us to do us humans to do is just quit abusing the the the, the creatures on our planet and uh, treat them with dignity and respect and that was their message but you said you said something very interesting that we don't have the ability to communicate with them maybe now because generation after generation, if you have a child, for example, who displays psychic abilities, or he or she says, so-and-so came to visit last night and said X, Y, Z, what do the parents do normally? Well, you need to stop about, stop talking that nonsense. And even eventually, they're taken to the psychologist or to the psychiatrist. And what happens where you're taken to a therapist? Usually they say, you need medication, 
And maybe you need to go to a mental institution, which is exactly what happened to one person in your book. I believe her name was Judy, right? Right. And, and, and Albert wanted to, he wanted to make that point, I think, very forcefully. And so he, he took me to a, a, a mental institution in the, on the East Coast of the U.S. And there we saw this lady who was in her 30s, Judy. And she was just sitting in a chair in, in her room, sort of staring at the wall. You know, as you can imagine, you've seen movies with, of mental patients. And, sure. and she was just staring off into the distance. And he said the story there was exactly as you described it. She was she had some psychic abilities as a young child, and she saw people from the spirit world. She spoke to them, but when she explained this to her parents, they just uh, dismissed it and said, "You got a you know vivid imagination. You can't that you can't do that. You can't be seeing that." And but 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 these visitations kept on coming, and as she and she learned when she was in her uh, in her teens to not sort of mention it very much anymore but then she got married and had a couple of children everything seemed fine but but then she um decided she had to come clean with her husband and so she told her husband about that she could communicate with the spirit world and she um saw these people who had passed on and he was a very loving husband but he just couldn't quite you know get his head around that 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 was possible. So he, yeah, he talked her into going to a, to a psychiatrist. Um, and she told her story to, to that person. Um, and they eventually decided that she needed, uh, you know, she should go into the mental hospital and have, and be medicated. And so there she was sitting there under medication. And, and then she, she sort of saw more and more of, of other worlds, other dimensions. And, and so she was spending her time, not when she was staring at the wall, she wasn't just staring at the wall. She was actually, in her mind, she was exploring other dimensions and, and, and the people there and other planets, which is all quite fascinating. But she had just given up trying to tell other people what she saw and what she was doing. And so they just kept on. And the, and the poor lady, you know, she stayed in the mental hospital and uh, and they kept her under medication. And that was sort of the... The, 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 you know, when I left, I knew that she would never get out of there again because, uh, you know, our medical science isn't quite ready to uh, accept the fact that people, some people, have the ability to see through the through the veil to the spirit world. And so this poor lady was labeled, uh, you know, a schizophrenic and institutionalized, which is really unfortunate. But I think that that happens probably more than we think. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of the people that we think are mentally unstable or schizophrenic, um, bipolar, whatever, they really are acting that way because they're, they've got a glimpse into, into the spirit world, into other dimensions, and they just have a hard time explaining what they're seeing uh, or getting anyone to believe them that they are really seeing what they're seeing. And you see, that's the problem because... Science only wants to see whatever they can observe in a laboratory. They want to be able to, to replicate something. And if they cannot feel it, they cannot touch it, well, then something is wrong, wrong with us. Uh, I have to read this quote before we take our one and only intermission. This is something that the dolphin and the whale communicated to you. Quote, we do not understand the unbridled arrogance of the human race. They act like Earth was put there for their own exclusive use, and the other creatures that share your planet do not matter. Earth and all of its other creatures do not deserve such abuse. However, we seem to be powerless to stop this from happening. To be honest, your planet would be much better off without any humans. We do not have humans on Proteus, and we enjoy a healthy, balanced ecosystem without any pollution. Unquote. That is so true. We're the biggest predator and the biggest threat to this planet, Garnet. Yes, we are. Yeah, and uh, and there, th what they told me there was dead on, and I just had to uh, had to make sure I put it in my book because, um, you, you know, that it, it just it, it really hits home that that we we are the biggest problem that this planet has, and we need to clean up our act. Um, otherwise, it's uh, not going to go well for our for our dear Mother Earth. We may not be the biggest predator, as I said, but we're definitely the most dangerous. When we come back, folks, we have so much more, so many, many other trips that you took with Albert. And gosh, I just cannot believe what I'm seeing here. I believe that you also have another book coming out in the near future, correct? That is correct. My, uh, my third book has been accepted for publishing by my publisher, Ozark Mountain Publishing. And uh, I'm not sure of the timetable of when it will come out, but it will either be late this year or early 
next year, and I'm certainly looking forward to that. I think it's a it's a it's a sequel to my first two books: more astral adventures with Albert, um, more uh, interviews with with people on the spirit side, uh, visits to other places, and it's uh, I'm very excited about it. I think that people who read who've read the first two books will really enjoy the third book. And the new book is titled Dancing Forever with Spirit, Astonishing Insights from Heaven. And how can people buy it, uh, Garnet? Um, there are buy links on my website, uh, which is uh, com, and I have a bunch of buy links on for the online buying sites. Um, a lot of bricks-and-mortar bookstores will carry it, but if your favorite store doesn't have it, they can certainly order it for you. And you can also order it directly from my publisher, Ozark Mountain Publishing, and there's a, a, a link that you can click on on my website. This interview is airing on April the 2nd, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the release date is March 31st, correct? So it should be out when this airs. Uh, yes, it should be, uh, bearing unforeseen circumstances. But uh, yeah, that's, that's so April 2nd, it, yeah, it should be available by then, Mel. Excellent. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Garnet Schulhauser, and we'll have so much more to discuss when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.